This morning we read from Esther chapter 6, which is found on page 523, I believe in the Pew Bibles, comes just before Job, just before the Psalms, the book of Esther, a unique book in which God's name is not mentioned even one time, and yet his providence is seen on every page. And in a sense, the background to the book of Esther, indeed the background to all 66 books of the Bible, is found in Genesis 3.15, where God spoke to the serpent, to the devil, to Satan, and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head but you will strike his heel. And the conflict of all of history concerns that spiritual battle of good and evil, of God and Satan. In the book of Esther, we see where a political leader of prominence, Haman by name, the king's right-hand man, drew up an edict to annihilate the people of God. But in God's providence, a Jewish orphan girl, Esther, became the queen of Persia. She and her cousin Mordecai were used by the Lord in gracious providence to turn tables on Haman and preserve the lineage of the eternal Christ who would be born out of the Jewish nation, Jesus, the descendants of Abraham, of David, coming from the line of Israel. And we read a slice, a slice of that history here in Esther chapter 6. And this evening, we read the striking, dramatic conclusion in chapter 7. But Esther, the sixth chapter, on that night, the king could not sleep, And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. 
and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And may the Lord bless the reading and the study of his word as we look at it together this morning. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, most of you can relate to the frustration of King Ahasuerus as he could not sleep. You've had that type of night, I'm sure, where you toss and you turn and you look at the clock and it's still in the wee early hours of, of the morning, but sleep just won't come. That is the type of night that the king was having. And as chapter 6 begins, it simply tells us that night the king could not sleep. It was the same night that he and his right-hand man, Haman, had attended a feast that Esther had hosted. From Esther 5, verse 6, we know that they were drinking wine. But even having the best wine and the finest of foods at that banquet that Esther threw for the king and for Haman, sleep would still not come to the king. So he did what perhaps many of you students would do or be tempted to do when you read your history books. Verse 1 describes how he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. He probably thought that the reading of the history of his kingdom would certainly put him to sleep and he would get that rest that he desired so much. And perhaps his eyelids were just starting to close when verse 2 tells us, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. You see, they had planned to assassinate the king. Instead of putting him to sleep, that news really woke him up. In verse 3, he asked, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this act? Persian kings were known for elaborate displays of affection and honor 
of thankfulness given to those who helped within their kingdom, especially if it involved the saving of a life, either that of the king or one of his family members. The historian Herodotus describes how King Ahasuerus rewarded a man who saved the life of his brother by allowing him to become the governor of an entire province within Persia. And because elaborate rewards were normally given, Ahasuerus was now wide awake asking what had been done for Mordecai. More than likely, he was drawing a complete blank. Here his life had been spared by Mordecai's actions, but what had been done? His attendants answered his question by saying, nothing, nothing has been done for him. And as they were speaking, God is the God of perfect timing. As they were speaking, who should enter the king's court but Haman? It was still the early hours of the morning. It would be unusual for anyone to enter into the outer court of the palace at that time of the early morning. No wonder the king asked, who is in the court? And his attendants answered, Haman is there standing in the court. Just as the king had been up all night unable to sleep, so Haman had also been up all night unable to sleep, but for a far different reason. He had been building a gallows 75 feet high on which to hang Mordecai upon. Yet Haman's plans would backfire completely. He was so eager to put an end to Mordecai, this child of God who refused to bow down before him. He was so eager to take his life, yet all his scheming, And his edict to annihilate the Jewish people led to his own death as well as to the deaths of many others who had been ready to persecute and annihilate the people of God who were living in Persia at that time. What does that teach us? One truth that is clearly taught is that God's providence supersedes and overrules all human plans and frustrates all human schemes that are opposed to Almighty God. As Psalm 33, verse 10 and 11 puts it, The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands firm forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And as the Lord frustrates the plans of the peoples, in this case, the plans Haman had, the Lord uses many unique means. With Jonah, the Lord used that large fish that swallowed Jonah. And then later, he used that little worm that ate away at the tree that gave shade, the bush that gave shade, as God planned and brought about the spread of the gospel into Nineveh and then chastised his servant Jonah. 
With the widow who sustained Elijah through a great famine, the Lord used just a little jar of flour that had a handful of flour in it and a little jar of oil about ready to run out. And yet throughout that entire famine, the jar of oil and the jar of flour never ran out. The Lord used them to sustain Elijah and the widow. In executing judgment on King Ahab, the Lord used an arrow which 1 Kings 22, verse 34 tells us was shot at random. It was shot at random and it came down and it pierced the king between the sections of his armor. You recall King Ahab had disguised himself so cleverly and he went out with the king of Judah against the enemy and the enemy thought that the king of Judah was Ahab and started to pursue him and he called out and warned them that, that he was not Ahab. Meanwhile, Ahab was escaping, he thought, certainly with his life. When someone drew that arrow, shot at random, and struck King Ahab between the sections of his armor, the Lord uses the little things to accomplish his great eternal Almighty purposes. In this case, with the king Ahasuerus, the Lord used a lack of sleep on the part of the king. Even though he was well fed, even though he had drank that wine at Esther's banquet, the Hebrew text says that sleep fled from him. Who made it flee? It was the Lord God Almighty, the providence of God. The Heidelberg Catechism gives us a beautiful definition of providence that I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. That is one truth that we see in this passage. God will use whatever means he wishes to use to accomplish his purposes and his plans and the purposes and plans of our God cannot be thwarted by the evil one or any of those who follow after him. A second truth that we see unfold in this chapter is a truth that the Apostle Paul would write to the Galatian church about Centuries later, in Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8, where he warns us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, that is the flesh, will from his sinful nature, the flesh, reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, will reap eternal life. Haman had sowed corruption, and corruption destroys. His corruption led to his death. It, it led to his eternal damnation. And his corruption 
just like your corruption and just like my corruption came from within the recess of his heart. It was rooted in his heart. In verse 6, when the king asked Haman, what should be done for the man the king is delighted to honor? Haman thought to himself, whom would the king be delighted to honor more than me? And in the Hebrew, the text is saying in his heart, in his heart, Haman thought, whom would the king rather honor than me? It is just as Jesus would later teach in Matthew 15, verse 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Unless that evil within your heart and that evil within my heart is repented of and turned from by the Holy Spirit's conviction and indwelling power. It will lead to eternal damnation just as it did for Haman. As we read about the remarkable turn of events caused by the king's lack of sleep, we are also reminded that God is true to all of his promises, including the promise to protect his people. Haman had carefully plotted to destroy the people of God. Back in chapter 3, verse 8, he described to the king how there were a certain group of people who lived within the land of the Medes and the Persians who had customs unlike the rest of the people. In verse 9 of that chapter, he said, If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. And Esther 3, verse 10 and 11 gives this chilling response of the king. It says, So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said. And do whatever you please with the people. In that passage, Haman is specifically described as the enemy of the Jews. And the Jews, the people of Israel and the people of Judah and the Old Testament, were the people upon whom God had lavished his special love. He had promised to deliver them from their enemies, to provide for them, to bless them by using them to be the human lineage of the eternal Christ who would be born in flesh at the fullness of time as the baby Jesus. As Romans 9 verse 4 and 5 puts it, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. It was these people that Haman was set on destroying. It was to be a complete annihilation on a mass scale. Esther 3.13 describes the specifics of Haman's edict to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, 
women and little children on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and plunder, plunder their goods. God's people have always been the target of the evil one and those who follow him. And yet God has always promised to protect his people. The promise was clearly given way back in Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3, when the Lord gave this promise to Abram as he told Abram how he would make him uh, the father of a great nation. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you declared the Lord, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. With this in mind, we see how futile, how foolish, and how sinful Haman's plot was. Apparently, his wife and his advisors came to understand what Haman missed. In the second part of verse 13, Haman's wife and his advisors said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish people. You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. The New Testament echoes that same truth with resounding force in that rhetorical question of Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? And the answer, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, writes the Apostle Paul, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. And that leads to our first application this morning we can be sure that the Lord is and ever will be victorious in that age-old battle of good and evil, of God and Satan, of believers and those who would oppress and persecute believers. God will be forever victorious. We see where the battle lines have been clearly drawn for us in this passage in chapter 5, verse 14, we read of how these gallows were built by Haman that were 75 feet tall. He planned to hang Mordecai 
in the morning on those gallows. Haman was an Agagite, a descendant of King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. And by contrast, Mordecai was a descendant of Saul, the first king of Israel. And Saul had been commanded to destroy the Amalekites because they had always been a thorn and a vicious enemy of Israel. In 1 Samuel 15.3, the Lord gave a clear command to Saul to destroy the Amalekites, but instead he spared them. So now, much later in time, the Lord used this unique combination of a lack of sleep and the reading of the history books to bring about a complete change, a stunning reversal of events as Haman would be hung on the very gallows that he had made for Mordecai. The Lord Almighty will be victorious. His reign, his rule, his will cannot be thwarted. Those who try will be thoroughly defeated. If not in this life, then in the life to come. Haman serves as an example of the futility of those who oppose God's plan and God's purposes, including the protection of his people. The psalmist describes how the Lord laughs at those who would oppose him and his people. Psalm 2, verse 2 to verse 6. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The word terrify, as used by the psalmist in Psalm 2, for those who would oppose God and his people, certainly describes the heart of Haman as his own wife and his own advisors tell him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will certainly fall before him. A second application is that worry should have no place in the life of those who trust in God and in his providence. We have such a tendency to worry usually about things that will never happen. But really, worry should have no place in the life of a believer. Did you notice what Mordecai did after that ride through the city when Haman, thoroughly humiliated, had to announce to all the people, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor? After that unique ride, verse 12 records that Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He did not bask in pride the way Haman would have done. Instead, he went back to his place at the city gate to wait upon the Lord, trusting that God's providence would yet deliver his people from this edict that had already been signed and put into effect. From his reaction, we see that those who trust in the providence of God have no reason to worry. Yes, we are to make plans. 
There is wisdom in Ecclesiastes 11, verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be successful. We are not to be idle like those in the Thessalonian church who were convinced that the Lord would return in their lifetime, so they quit their jobs and just waited for the Lord to return. And the apostle had to tell them, the man who does not work shall not eat. But even though we plan and work, and diversify, as Ecclesiastes 11, verse 6 tells us to do, we have no place for worry. The same God who watched over and delivered Esther and Mordecai from Haman and his cruel edict is the one who watches over you and the one who watches over me. And because of the watchful eye, of our Heavenly Father, Jesus spoke words of great comfort, words that all who believe in the Lord and his providence must take to heart. He said, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? The Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 10 and question 28 and its answer gives us the proper response to the knowledge of God's providence. It asks, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. And that truth leads to our third application this morning, which is that when we have a proper understanding of the providence of God, then we are enabled to live by faith and not by sight. When we have that proper understanding of the providence of God, we begin to realize that the events that we see around us in the world in which we live are not always really the way they appear to be. We see so much evil in our world today, and it is so very strong. The nations of the world are poised against the truths of Christianity. The hostility of the world is directed against the Lord and his people. And if we just looked at what goes on in our world, and if we just looked at what goes on within our nation, we might think that the evil one and his cohorts have the upper hand. But 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7 tells us, Walk by faith, not by sight. We realize the truth of the hymn writer, that this is indeed our Father's world, and that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. 
Mordecai had that same assurance as he sat at the city gate. Esther, Mordecai, and God's people of that day would realize that the events that they saw unfolding around them were not really as they appeared to be. They would come to realize that Haman and his evil plot would not prevail. The tables would be turned. God's people would be spared. And throughout the history of this fallen world, we celebrate that same truth. We can have calm assurance that our sovereign God rules supreme in heaven, even when horrific events which are terribly bad, take place in this fallen world. We can walk by faith and not by sight. We see that things are not as they appear, even or especially when we look at the greatest event in all of history, the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was led out to Mount Calvary to be crucified He had been betrayed with a kiss and condemned as guilty, even though he was innocent. Then Matthew 26, 67 tells us that they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. After they blindfolded him, others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, O Christ, who hit you? As he hung, crucified, Between two thieves on Mount Calvary, it certainly seemed as though the devil had won, as though all who hate God and his people were victorious. Jesus Christ was crucified. But in actuality, just the opposite had happened. Matthew 27, verse 50 and 51, describes how after Jesus cried out with a loud voice and healed yielded up his spirit, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and there was entrance into the most holy place. By his death and subsequent resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ defeated the devil and brought reconciliation between sinners like ourselves and our Father in heaven. When Jesus died, that curtain in the temple was torn in two, which represents the opening of the most holy place, the opening into heaven for all who believe in Jesus to enter in. By his death and his resurrection, he sealed the devil's doom and opened heaven's gate to all who by his grace believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with true saving faith. Do you believe that? Is that your assurance this morning that your faith is placed in Jesus Christ alone for salvation from your sins? If so, then you can rest secure that your true citizenship is in heaven and its gates are open wide for you because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be sure that nothing can separate you from his love, not even the last enemy to be destroyed, that enemy of death. And as you wait for that glorious day when you will see Jesus face to face, you can rest assured 
That the same God who has redeemed you from your sin will providentially watch over you even in the hardest trials, persecutions, and heartaches of this life. May these truths encourage and sustain us in all the turmoil within our world, within our nation, and all the turmoil from the sin that is unfortunately within ourselves. May we yet realize again that God is always at work behind the scenes today, just as he was back in the days of Esther and Mordecai. Amen. Our Father and our God, how thankful we are that you reign supreme in heaven, that your purposes and plans cannot be thwarted, and that all of history, with all of its turmoil and trouble, with its persecution, with its instability, is yet working by your hand of guidance and providence toward that great and glorious day when your Son will be uh, revealed in glory and will return to judge the living and the dead, to right all the wrongs, and to receive those who, by your grace, have saving faith in your Son alone for salvation. How we look forward to that day and pray that in the meantime we would be lights in this dark world and ones who are not filled with worry, but rather filled with faith and trust in your gracious hand of providence and redemption. We pray in Jesus' name.